It is wonderful to have our Knoxville representatives with us tonight, Patrick and Rhonda and the Keys, Jeremy and Brandy, and they have a new addition, Mason. Mason's taken over my waiting room. First, it became a dressing room with Phil. He has like 12 shirts when he comes here. He's one, he changes two or three times per message. And uh, now it's a nursery. So, All right. Let's turn to Romans anywhere. I can't express how much I am grateful to the Lord for, as I said before, the outposts, the DVD groups, and their faithfulness, which means a whole lot. They go through assaults like we do, only it's probably more magnified in a small group. And so I thank God not only for their fidelity and courage, and no one, no one here, and I don't expect any fidelity to Tetelestai, but I, I am remarkably impressed by fidelity to the Word of God, to the mind of Christ, and to true friendship. It's wonderful to have you all here. Where are you down there? What number, what, where are you at in Romans? You're current. Ah, so I can't be fancy tonight. You're all caught up. You did a pretty good job on our website, too, Jeremy. I mean, Tetelestai. Yeah, there's not many pictures of me on there like yours. You have, you know, but <laughs> he's going to get me back. Yeah, I want my picture everywhere. <laughs> All right, Romans. Tonight we're going to uh, kind of enter into a phase of Romans that's breaking some new ground in a way. I've, I've introduced the subject under the acronym GAL, God-Approved Livingness. And since I've discovered that concept, it, it's come into my mind as being one of the most significant things that's, that's at issue in Romans. What kind of livingness, and that's a word that came from the 1600s that's been taken up by Jürgen Moltmann, because it's not quite living, it's not quite life, it's a livingness. It's a quality of living that I call a liberated livingness, a transformative Life that is possible only in Christ Jesus. It includes a participative fellowship in the fidelity of Messiah. Really what is at issue in Romans, as in Galatians, is the conflict between two missionary endeavors to the Gentiles. One by a Jewish Christian missionary who requires law observance, of the pagans in order to come into membership in Israel, really. And then there is Paul, the Jewish Christian apostle, whose message is purely of grace. But what it comes down to is not so much in the later chapters of Romans, in the center chapters of Romans, not so much what justifies you, but what constitutes a life and a livingness that God approves of. 
And this is very important. When I started to look at Romans a couple of years ago, Romans 4 specifically, what is Romans 4 all about? The deeper reading is that God approved of Abraham's faith. He did not justify Abraham on the basis of Abraham's believing. That's not the point of Romans 4. The point of Romans 4 is that God approved of a certain livingness by Abraham, which was a participation in Christ's faithfulness in a kind of a precocious way. It was a participating in a faithful trust in God, a faithful trust in his promise that brought him into a certain kind of livingness that God approved of. This kind of livingness was expressed by Abraham before his circumcision. And it was expressed by him after his circumcision in Genesis. In fact, in Genesis 17, 1, God said to Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. Walk before me, be blameless, be mature. And that was before circumcision. And so this is where the, the roots of the idea comes from in Galatians 5, 6, that circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. The law is nothing in terms of adherence to it. Neither is the not law, the not adherence to the law. But what means something is a faith that works by love, a faith that is made effective by God's love. Same thing he says in Galatians 6.15. In the most controversial passage, which we're coming around to again, we're making a full circle that began all the way back at the farm on the Israel of God because Romans 9 through 11 in the center of Romans is not about the so-called problem of Israel's unbelief, but it's about the identity of Israel. What is Israel? Who is Israel? And so what kind of life and livingness does God approve of? Does he approve of the kind of livingness that is by an observation of the law, by observance of the law, beginning with circumcision and then going on to the dietary laws and the calendar of feasts and festivals and new moons, which results then in the judgment of those who are not following those criteria and which on the other side demands a full-fledged following of the law or does a blowing off of the law altogether or is it something right in the heart of God of faith that works by love energized by the power of God's Holy Spirit because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This subject is going to have to be approached like an optometrist, like they do. I've used this analogy many times. They drop down a lens and they say, do you see through that? Yeah, pretty good. Then another one. And then finally you're going, wow, I see perfectly. This is going to come in a series of lenses where it will start with somewhat of an obscure picture, but then it will come into a clear focus. This is not related to the horizon of universal salvation this is the related to the question i've asked been asked so many times what about now how do we live now how shall we live now how do we function now what do we do and this is what i call a god-approved livingness there is 
not only in Romans, but throughout the scriptures, a divinely approved livingness. And let's call it another word, rectitude. We'll call it rectitude. It comes from a semantic group of words in the book of Romans. Dikaio words, all words with the root dikaio, D-I-K-A-I-O. We get the word righteousness there from that, dikaiosune. Dikaiosune theu is the righteousness of God. We get the word dikaiao for justify, which is better translated rectify. We get the word dikaiosune as a human idea or as a divine activity in human beings, which we'll call rectitude. And so there is a divinely approved livingness, which we will call rectitude. There are many meanings for the word righteousness, as the word is used in Romans. Dikaiosune theu is the righteousness of God. That is what Romans 1.17 reveals as something that is being apocalypsed. Apocalypto doesn't simply mean an unveiling. That is a paltry definition of the word apocalypto. It means an invasion, an invasive revelation. The righteousness of God has invaded this evil age with an action and an activity that means deliverance and that means rescue on a cosmic level, on a universal level. And that process is ongoing now. It is the process by which all things are being restored. All things are being rectified. And that's a better word than justified. To rectify something is to set it right. It's been wrong. You set it right. What's wrong is in the whole of the universe of proportionate being, including all of humankind, there is the reign of death. And there is the power of of sin. Both of these are apocalyptic powers. In some cases, the word the flesh is used by Paul to describe mere humanity, unaided by divine power. But in many cases, it's, a, it's similar to, if not interchangeable with sin, with a capital S-I-N, an apocalyptic power, a suprahuman power that holds people under a yoke of slavery, a yoke of bondage. Mankind could no way deliver themselves from these supernatural powers, supranatural, suprahuman, beyond human. And so the gospel is God's invasive power, his rescuing, redeeming, transforming, liberating power in all the universe. And it catches up to people one by one in an act of God called regeneration that will one day be A universal act. As Jesus said in Matthew 19, 28. There are many words, many meanings rather, for the word righteousness then as the word is used in Romans. Most importantly is dikaiosune theu, the righteousness of God. This is the righteousness that is apocalypsed or apocalyptically revealed in the gospel. Romans 1, 17. It's the reason why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. For therein, in it, by it, in it, is the righteousness of God apocalyptically revealed. It is in the gospel is God's invasion into this evil age 
in Galatians 1.4 to rescue all creation, which is even now anticipating the apocalypse of the sons of God. The final revelation, the universe-shaking revelation of eschatological Israel. The righteousness of God is primarily what he has done. It is not primarily his attribute. The primary attribute of God, which covers all the attributes of God, is love. Love is the foundation, the base for his act of righteousness. Righteousness, again, is what he has done. The primary verse I find for that is Psalm twenty-two, thirty-one. A generation yet unborn will hear about God's righteousness, what he has done. The word is asa there. It's a word that means to create, is what is he has created, what he has done. It is largely equivalent to the word tetelestai, accomplished, what he has accomplished, what he has done. So if the gospel revealed the righteousness of me or of man or of others, I couldn't boast in it. But because it reveals the righteousness of God, I can brag about it all day long. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 71, 24. We have learned that the righteousness of God then is primarily what he has done specifically in his act of delivering his son. We've identified Jesus as the one who made himself in need of divine deliverance. We have identified Jesus as the one whom God justified in Romans 3.26. God is just, and he is just to justify the one who by his own faithfulness, the one, Jesus, by his own faithfulness. We'll work on that translation a little bit, but Romans 3.26 deals with God's rectification of his son. Why did his son need to be rectified because in his death he became sin and because in dying he was dead. How do you rectify someone in death? By giving them life from the dead. And when Christ was justified or rectified in Romans 6, 7, Romans three twenty six, so were we. That's the righteousness of God. So, God's righteousness is what he has done, specifically his act of delivering his son, his royal representative, Jesus Christ, from his oppressors, namely sin and death. And God's righteousness is always also revealed in his rectification of the ungodly. Romans 4, 5, we're getting there. I'm approaching Romans 4 through his son's death for them in Romans 5, 6. Romans 4, 5 and 5, 6. God's righteousness is what he has done. The principle for God's righteousness, or we could say the foundation from which God acted in righteousness, is love. God is love. And he sent his only begotten son to be the propitiation for our sins that we may live through him. Who's we? All the world. First John 2, 1. He is the righteous one. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
If anyone sins, let him know that he has an advocate. He doesn't have an adversary. He has an advocate in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, in 1 Peter 3.18, died for the unrighteous. Who are they? Everybody. For in Adam all die because of the reign of death. People are ungodly and unrighteous because of the power of sin that holds them captive and because of the reign of death. This does not say that they are not complicit with the power of sin and actively volitionally sin. It's not saying that. Nor does it suggest that they have not made a covenant with death. Isaiah 28, 12 says they have made a covenant with death. Our will is involved, but our will can't get us out from under the slavery to sin and death. God did that. God's will is the will involved in human salvation. The only human will involved in your salvation is the will of the man, Christ Jesus, who was obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. To what was he obedient? To whom was he obedient? He was obedient to his father, but what about his father was he obedient to? He was obedient to his father's agenda to save all humankind. Because it is God our Savior's will that all be saved. Jesus then obeyed that will of the Father to the extent of death by crucifixion. Again, these are all statements that seem to be made outside of the Roman thing. But these are, you know, I found one thing about Paul. He doesn't just write so that you'll just take what he says. We're supposed to. But he writes so that we can conclude from what he says and innovate on what he says and make conclusions on what he says. He leaves so much open for us to continue developing the truth that he's brought. It's so wonderful. God's righteousness is his act and his ongoing action. The foundation from which he acts in righteousness is love. For God is love. And he has expressed this love effectively by sending his son to be the propitiation for the sins of the world so that the world may live through him. The righteousness of God is secondly, that which God approves. First, what God does. Second, what God approves. The righteousness of God or rectitude. There's a related word here that is a rare word and it's called dikaioma, D-A. D-I-K-A-I-O-M-A. Dikaioma. And that means a righteous action. It's found in Romans 5.18, and it speaks of the righteous deed of the man, Jesus Christ, through whom we reign in life. In Romans 5.17. And it's presented in direct contrast to a paraptoma which is an act of transgression, one act, paraptoma, P-A-R-A-P-T-O-M-A, paraptoma, the act of the first man, Adam. And so the act, the righteous deed or act of the one man, Jesus Christ, which was his obedience to the Father's will to save all to the extent of death by crucifixion, 
is contrasted with the paraptoma of the one man Adam through which death reigned over all mankind from Adam to Moses and Moses' law didn't change that at all. It only accentuated the reign of death and the power of sin to control. The law was given that sin might increase. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. This one act of righteousness by Jesus Christ resulted in, and this is a, that's why I think Romans 5.18 is the most power-packed verse in Romans I can't find more heart-of-the-heart matter here than in Romans 5.18. The other word that's used here for after dikaioma is dikaiosin, D-I-K-A-I-O-S-I-N. Dikaiosin, which means to justify. And they're both stacked up in this word. Dikaioma, Christ's one act, and dikaiosin, but then it says dikaiosin zoes, the justification of life for all humankind one act Jesus Christ associated with the justification of all of humankind God saves mankind because God approves of Jesus Christ's faithfulness Jesus Christ's faithfulness continues in his corporate body by God's effective love God, therefore, approves of one kind of livingness, and it's a participation with Christ's own faithfulness. And he approves of this. It's God-approved livingness. That's what it is at issue in Rome. You see, if the livingness that you're living is a comparative righteousness where you're obeying the law or a series of laws or a series of things, and you're comparing yourselves with others, there's never going to be unity there among the saints. But if all recognize what they are in grace and what they are in Christ and participate in the Son's fidelity, then there's a unity. And the unity, in turn, inspires missionary enterprise. So this one act of righteousness by Jesus Christ, dikaioma, resulted in dikaiosin zoes, the rectification of life for all human beings. Now, if this decision of life is the gift to all of humankind, if this decision that God made for life for all mankind, he declared it, life, Ezekiel 16.8, one of the most touching passages, He comes upon Israel in its infancy. She's in her blood. She's been born and cast aside on the roadside as a fetus, almost an aborted fetus, a newly born child still in the blood of the mother. And Yahweh said, I came upon you in the pathway, and I said to you, live. And she lived. God came upon me one day in my blood, in my sin, in my ungodliness, in my despair. And he said, live. I lived. I live. So what does it mean then? If this decision of life is the gift to all of humankind, then what does Romans 5.1 mean when it says, therefore, being justified, rectified, set right by faith, we have 
peace with God. It means that all of the human race was set right by the faithfulness of Messiah unto death, as Phil said even earlier. And that faithfulness of Messiah unto death was rewarded, duly rewarded by God. With life. What does the scripture say? Paul hits it hard in Romans 117b. For what does the scripture say? The righteous one will live by faithfulness. It's more stark in the Old Testament. It says, My righteous one, God is speaking, my righteous one will live by his faithfulness. Who's the righteous one? Jesus Christ. Why does he live? Because of his faithfulness to the point of death. Why do I live? Because of the faithfulness of Messiah. The reward of life to Jesus Christ by the Father was because God shows himself faithful to the faithful. Holman Christian Standard Bible, Psalm 18:25. He shows himself faithful to the faithful. Now, the lens is going to drop here in a minute because the righteousness of God is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. From God's faithfulness to his son's faithfulness. God who is faithful, who called us into fellowship with his son in 1 Corinthians 1.9. God whose faithfulness is great in Lamentations chapter 3. Great is thy faithfulness. God who is faithful who will what? Sanctify you body, soul, and spirit. Faithful is he who called you who will also do it, 1, Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians 5.24. God is faithful who will not permit you to be tested beyond what you're able, but will always provide a way of escape, an ekbasis, a way to get out, a way to endure it, a way to bear it. God is faithful. God is faithful to his faithful son. Your salvation, your rectification, your justification, your transformation, your liberation, your livingness is a result of God's faithfulness to the faithfulness of his son. This gospel is so all about Jesus Christ, I thought I was Christocentric one day until this. And now it makes me want to fall on my knees. He shows himself faithful. To the faithful one, my righteous one, Jesus Christ. Again, I have to emphasize this. Paul sees this splendid light. It knocks him on his, off his, off his ass or off his horse. It unhorses him anyways. And he says, I am Jesus, the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. Jesus the Nazarene. When he goes to Straight Street in Damascus, he looks up a man named Ananias. Ananias said to him, let me tell you what just happened to you, brother Saul. God willed for you to see the righteous one and to hear a word from his mouth. Who is the righteous one? Jesus the Nazarene. Who else? Nobody else. Nobody else. He's the righteous one 
who lives by his faithfulness as a result of his faithfulness, literally, as a result of his faithfulness, his faithful obedience to the extent of death for us. God gives him life. It's called resurrection life. So the reward of life to Jesus Christ was given to him because of his faithfulness. But the reward, and here's the strangest, one of the strangest verses in the Bible. If someone works, then their pay is calculated on the basis of what they've done. But he says there's a reward that's now calculated by grace. That's strange. How can a reward be calculated by grace? How can a pay be given by grace? That's because Jesus Christ was rewarded for his faithfulness and his obedience unto death. But we are rewarded by grace, courtesy of his faithfulness. That's why I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I can talk about it everywhere. I don't have to talk about it in certain company because it doesn't matter whether you're a Muslim or an atheist or a scientist or a Scientologist. You can talk about this gospel to people. Paul talked about it with his own countrymen and they fought him. And so he said, well, okay, I guess you're counting yourselves as unworthy of eternal life. So I guess I'll go to the pagans. Maybe they'll listen. That's Acts 13, 47 and following. Kind of makes me want to go into all the world. <laughs> now, this is enormously significant, this interpretation of justification in Romans. God showed himself to be faithful to the faithful one, Jesus Christ, and rewarded him with life from the dead. And that life from the dead is the kind of life we have. It's not, the life we were born with isn't life from the dead. It's not life authentically. It's not life that's life indeed, as 1 Timothy 6.12 and 6.19 says. Paul said to Timothy, lay hold on the life that's really life. And he said, tell people that are rich in your congregation not to trust in the uncertainty of riches. He didn't say, tell the rich to give all their money to you or give all your money to the church. He just said, tell people that are rich in your congregation not to trust in the uncertainty of earthly wealth, but instead to lay hold on that which is life indeed. The life that we have in Christ is a life from the dead that God gives and that God transforms us with. Romans 4.17, another key verse. It is God who calls things into being that had no existence at all before. And it's the same God who raises the dead. He called us into existence. And he gave us a life which is the life from the dead that he gave to Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ gave to us. Why did we need to be rectified? Because we were dead. How do you rectify a situation in which people are dead in sins? You make them alive. What can they do to help? (laughs) You know the answer to that. Being dead in sins... And that's what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Here's a group of people that just got confronted by the gospel and became a Christian community overnight. 
And Paul has to tell them what happened to him. You know what happened to you? You were made alive with Christ. You were dead in your sins, and you were made alive together with Christ with a life that, his life that came from the dead, a life from the dead. You were saved by grace through a faithfulness that's not your own. Translations have to make up their mind about translating. Well, it means faith in Christ, and it means the faithfulness of Christ, or it could mean both. No, it's the faithfulness of Christ straight through. Choose today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, it's all about Christ. As for me and this church, if as long as I'm a pastor in it, it's Christ. And so, God showed himself to be faithful to one faithful one. Jesus Christ, and rewarded him with life from the dead. Life not only for the faithful one, though, but at the same time for all of humankind whom he loved and for whose sins he gave himself over to death. For Jesus Christ, the, re- the reward was reckoned, considered, calculated on the basis of faithfulness. His faithfulness. For all the rest of mankind, the reward is calculated on the basis of grace. Jesus told it in a parable. People worked all day long. They got paid. People came in in the last hour. They got paid the same amount. The idea here is if you object to that, which some of the workers did, you're objecting toward the astonishing generosity of God. I've learned one thing after 40 years of preaching this in various growth and increments until it got a wider horizon. I've learned one thing. I got no complaints against God's astonishing generosity. This, in fact, explains and, in fact, even interprets Romans 117, the key verse of Romans or the thesis verse of Romans, that God who is faithful showed himself faithful to the faithful one. That's very good news for you and for me and for all humanity and for all creation and for the screaming creation, not just groaning, screaming. We're talking about birth pangs here in creation. Creation is screaming in desperation to be liberated. What's it waiting for? It's waiting for the apocalypse of the sons of God. It's waiting for the time in which the sons of God come invasively in glory with Jesus Christ. And when all creation receives its liberation from its slavery to corruption, that's what it's waiting for. And who are the sons of God? Hosea 2.1 says they are eschatological Israel. And eschatological Israel will one day be all of humankind in all of its times. Because Israel is in reality Jesus Christ and all those whom he indwells and inundates with his presence. Again, these are lenses. You're not seeing clear, but they have to be brought before the clear ones come. 
that the righteousness of God is apocalypsed from faithfulness to faithfulness in Romans 1.17, the key verse that defines the rest of the epistle, means that God's faithfulness rewarded Jesus' faithfulness unto death by raising him from the dead. My righteous one, Jesus Christ, the one in whom I am pleased, the one in whom I am pleased. I'm going to show my faithfulness to his faithfulness unto death by giving him life and by giving life to all those whom he represents as the second inclusive representative after Adam, so that in Christ all will be made alive. Christ will be made alive as my reward for his faithfulness. All humanity will be made alive on a reward reckoned by grace. Who heard of such a thing? I get paid... And I didn't do any work. Because Christ did all the work. That's what it means. It is finished. So that hasn't changed since November of 1978 here. The finished work of Christ. That hasn't changed. The horizon got bigger. I know you remember, Phil, when we were down at uh, Lecom Field, it was McKechnie back then, and Jerry, our other brother-in-law, brought a, a guy. I want you to meet this guy. The guy was so excited about Calvinism, and he was in Romans. He said, look, it doesn't matter. What, if God chooses you, you're chosen. You're going to be elect, and you're going you're gonna to be by, you're by, totally by grace. And he was so excited about it, I don't think he got my answer. I like Romans 11.32. He shut up everybody in disobedience in order to have mercy on all. But he was like, yeah, (laughs) you know, he was so excited about becoming a Calvinist from once being an Arminian that he didn't hear it. Now, I don't expect everybody to hear it. We don't expect everybody to hear the message. He who has ears to hear will hear. God chooses the time to reveal his son to someone. We just preach the gospel indiscriminately. And kindly and courteously, we give an answer for the hope that's in us with courtesy, with kindness, with gentleness, not with browbeating, not with slapping somebody around. You want to sometimes. So I'm trying to think of ways to articulate it. And thanks for praying for me because that's my main job is to think of ways to articulate things I see but cannot yet say. We could say that Jesus Christ lives as a divine reward for his faithfulness. He lives with this new quality of life, this incorruptible, imperishable, immortal human livingness as a reward for his faithfulness where he became obedient even to the extent of death by crucifixion. Therefore, therefore God highly exalted him. You see, it was a reward to him. But the reward to him for his faithfulness becomes a reward to all of the humanity and all of the domain that he represents as king by grace, grace, grace. To him that works, the pay, mistos, or the reward, the pay check, is reckoned or calculated on the basis of works. But to him that doesn't work at all, the reward or the pay, mistos, is calculated on the basis of grace. To him that works not, to him that doesn't work at all, 
The righteousness of God comes to us as an act of pure grace. Salvation comes as an act of pure grace. So Paul rightly interprets Habakkuk 2.4 messianically. That means he identifies this righteous one, not as any individual whose personal faith is placed in Christ, but as Jesus Christ himself. This is a crucial part of the opening declaration that the gospel is about his son concerning whom the writings of the prophets speak. All the writings of the prophets, the whole Old Testament speaks of him. Romans 1, 2, Romans 16, 26, brackets all of Romans. What's in the gospel is what's been revealed in the writings of the prophets all along. God only commanded now at the resurrection of Jesus Christ that it would become a pop-up book. And Christ would be seen everywhere in the Old Testament. It's now a pop-up book. Christ pops up everywhere because he popped up from the dead. He is the righteous one. It's none other than Jesus Christ who is the propitiation for the sins of the world in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. He is the righteous one who died for the unrighteousness, unrighteous ones, a.k.a. also known as the ungodly, to bring us to God. 1 Peter three eighteen compared with Romans 5, 2, 5, 6, 5, 8, 5, 10, 5, 11. Thus fulfilling God's negative desire, God had a negative desire related to salvation. He desired negatively, and Phil, you brought this out brilliantly last Thursday. His negative will is that none should perish. And he also brought his positive purpose together that all would be saved. God's will, which isn't just a desire. God doesn't just wish. And this is something you brought out, Pastor Brown. I actually laughed out loud when I listened to your tape. It's like, It's not like God's a five-year-old and he wishes and then blows out some candles. And and usually if you're five or 10 or 25 or 55, or even people older than that, I don't know who they are or where they would be or how they would think because I'm not that old yet. But whatever they wish for usually doesn't come to pass because it's wishful thinking. God doesn't do wishful thinking. God does something in which his wish is his own command, and his wish is a resolution. His wish is a determination. It gets done! So he doesn't just say, (laughs) this is what made me laugh. I was down in Charleston, I started laughing. I couldn't stop laughing. I wish I could save everybody. (laughs) But you know they got their own free will, and that's stronger than mine. The creature, you know, he's greater than the old creator, his will. Jesus was representing all of humankind when he said, not my will. Not my will as a representative of all humankind. Let's not make salvation a matter of human will. Let's make it a matter of your will, Father. Not my will, but yours be done. And what's his will? That I'll be saved. Ephesians 1.10 doesn't make it a wish. What kind of God is that? Sits up in heaven and blows out candles and said, I wish I could save them all, but most of them are going to go to a Christless eternity and burn forever in unrelenting pain, screaming all the time, and I can't do anything to help them. That's your God? Keep them. The faithful one is Jesus Christ. The righteous one 
is Jesus Christ. The righteous one is Jesus Christ. We've already seen that. 1 Peter 3.18, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Acts 22.8 and 22.14. Romans 1.17. Isaiah 53 throughout. But what about the faithful one? Well, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, whom John heard and saw, heard and saw, he also heard and saw the righteous one at Patmos in the Aegean Sea where he received the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. What did he say? The faithful one is Jesus Christ. The son of man is what he's called, and he had communities that were now addressable. You could address them. You can't address people who have not yet been awakened to faith about these things. They'll fight you. You can address a community, and God will create faith. Awake, you that sleep. God can wake them up. But churches like this little church here, this little flock here, are an addressable community. They can be addressed by the Spirit. Let he that has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Churches are addressable by God's Holy Spirit because they can hear the Holy Spirit, whom I believe God pours out. He's pouring him out tonight. He is present to teach, present to transform, present to save, present to restore present to reconcile, present to pour out love in their hearts of all of us. The faithful one is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, whom John heard and saw at Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And this Son of Man addressed the addressable community in Laodicea in Turkey. And he said this, Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true martyr. Witnesses martyr. Faithful and true. The faithful one and the true one. The beginning of the creation of God. The one who rose from the dead is the beginning of a new creation that's going everywhere. It's like that kind of ridiculous greenie song by a group, I like the group, called the guess who, not the who, but the guess who, the new mother nature. She's coming. I hated it even then, the whole uh, greenie movement, but he, the, it's, she's coming. She's getting us all. She's getting us all. The new mother nature has come to call. She's getting us all. Guess what? The new creation has come with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's getting us all. And death doesn't stop it. Well, I can't save that one. They're dead. <laughs> well, well, then you couldn't have saved me because I was dead in trespasses. I was dead in sin. So I was out, I guess. No. While you were dead in sins, you were made alive with Christ. I saved you while you were dead. Yeah, but they're physically dead. Wow, that wasn't a problem with Jesus. Death blocks me. Too strong for me. Your God too, is, is death too strong for your God? Keep him going to have them. I don't worship that God. Or as little Selah said, Selah Ferguson, she heard my tape when she was very young. She was four and I was yelling for some reason. And she thought, she thought on that tape that her mom and dad were listening to that that was God speaking. She thought I was God. But I was yelling. So she came into the room and she said, 
I can't like your God. She now knows that I'm not God, and that was such a great relief. Some of you that try to be God and try to be saviors and try to be someone's providence, isn't it so hard to be God? Quit it. Okay, in closing then, I have about one-fourth of what I had for you tonight, but what happens when you preach? I am the faithful one, he said. The beginning of the creation of God. So the phrase in Romans 1.17 that's frequently translated, listen carefully, look at any translation. Almost all the, there's something invested in almost every translation. Because the prince of the power of the air has got something on the translators. It's almost always translated, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. But it should be translated from faithfulness to faithfulness. But not only that, it should be translated, the righteousness of God, God's own righteous act in Christ, is revealed from his own faithfulness to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So it should be translated from faithfulness to faithfulness with the understanding that it means from God the Father's faithfulness to Jesus Christ's faithfulness. That is, from the faithfulness of the Father to the faithfulness of the Son for all those whom the Son represents, which is all humankind in Adam, or all the subjects of the King and all of his domain. What went on between the Father and the Son at Calvary and at resurrection is the saving act of God for all of humankind. It's not what goes on in your will. It's what goes on in God's action in Christ. God's righteousness is revealed from his own faithfulness, the Father's, to the Son's own faithfulness. The transaction of God rewarding his Son's faithfulness, God faithfully rewarding his Son's faithfulness, God righteously rewarding his Son's righteousness means that we have the same reward of life by grace. Grace. Supposed to say it twice because Zechariah 4 6 says, Grace, grace. What is this mountain to me? It will become a plain. What's the opposition to this gospel that seems to be built up into a mountain today, even among those who style themselves as Christians? What is this mountain? It shall become a plain, God said through the prophet Zechariah. Just run at it shouting, Grace. Grace, because the whole thing is not a matter of might or of power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Participation in this faithfulness of the Son is then gifted to those whom the Spirit awakens to faith. I was crucified with Christ. Hmm. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live, the life that I now live is my present livingness. I live it by the faithfulness of the Son of God. I live it within the sphere of, you could say, the faithfulness 
of the Son of God. It's a faithfulness that works by love because it's the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who is Israel is coming back again, full circle. Who is Israel? Israel are those who love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your heart, your mind, and soul and belongings. And love your neighbor as yourself. Who is Israel? They are the lovers of God. Who are the lovers of God? Those in whom the Holy Spirit pours out God's love as God's gift of his own love. Who's that going to be? Everybody. Who is it now? A small provisional proleptic community that we like to call the church. Participation in the faithfulness of the Son, then, is gifted to those whom the Spirit awakens to faith so that they may live not only because of, but also within the sphere of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us to blend 2.20 of Galatians with Titus 2.14. It says, he gave himself for us that we may become a people for God's own possession, zealous or enthusiastic for good works, which means... Works produced from faithfulness working by love. Acts of love, acts of astonishing kindness, acts of forgiveness, astonishing forgiveness to those who so heinously wronged us. Where's that come from? Comes from the one who said, Father, forgive them. Those who pierced me. Those who stripped me, beat me, punched me, put crown of thorns on my head, beat my face beyond recognition, nailed me to two slats of splintery wood, driven into the dirt, mocked me. Father, forgive them. Astonishing. That's the kind of love that's poured out in our hearts. This participated faithfulness, working by love, is what I call G-A-L, a God-approved livingness. How can there be disunity in a community that's got that going on? So when it says having been justified by faith, Paul is speaking of having been set right by the faithfulness of Messiah which necessarily means that we, plural, have peace with God through his reconciling act on the cross, Romans 5.9, Romans 5.11. This peace with God, Romans 5.1, at the end of Romans 4, which we're going to get to, this is all going that way. It means harmony with others, too. Have salt in yourselves, Jesus said, and be at peace one with another. Live in harmony. The salt is the salt that accompanies sacrifice. The salt is the truth of the finished work of Christ. Mark 9.50. Now, if the pagan saints, this is how it works in Romans specifically. If the pagan saints, the Gentile saints in Rome, were justified and were being rectified, it's a process of rectification, transformation, liberation into a God-approved livingness. If the pagan saints in Rome were justified and were being rectified by God through Messiah's faithfulness, and if the Jewish saints in Rome 
We're justified and we're being rectified, transformed and liberated by Messiah's faithfulness. Then both groups have peace with God and should have harmony with one another. Now we see Paul's method in Romans again. Paul's method in Romans. He applies the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, the faithful one, the righteous one, and the universally redemptive and reconciling impact of the cross of Christ. He brings that whole thing to bear on a local situation in Rome where there's division, factiousness, risotoma, fistfights at love feasts, you name it. He brings all that to bear on the local situation in Rome to do something unbelievably spectacular, and that is to bring about a practical and practicable unity among the saints there, and therefore to create a unified, addressable community in Rome, which was at the time the capital of the cosmos, Satan's world system. And so we're going to take the second part of this tomorrow night. I did myself a favor by only doing half of what I was going to do tonight, which means I got to really work on what I'm going to do tomorrow night. I'm going to do a similar thing tomorrow night, but I think the lens is going to drop so that you're going to go, wait, whoop, I see clearer that one. And pretty soon it'll be Second Chronicles 2020. Look it up sometime. It's kind of fun. Second Chronicles 2020. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We thank you for our visitors from Knoxville for their faithfulness, for their fidelity, for their kindness and their courage. And we thank you for the kindness and courage of all who are here tonight, giving me the attentiveness that I do not deserve, measuring out to me a measure of grace that I can speak the message of grace. Father, daily I'm thankful for this congregation. They are not, as so many Christians are, as sheep, confused and shepherdless because they have found the good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, and they are being shepherded willingly by his word of grace, the word of his grace, which is able to build them up and to give them inheritance among the saints. And I thank you, Father, for this opportunity that we have, that we take frequently to present a sacrifice of substance, 